When you look at what's going on with the American church, read studies and reports done by those who are uh, who study the American church, you find that the American church is in lots of trouble. Churches are closing and faster rates than new ones can be planted. Much of the theology uh, in the American church is as squishy as jello, and it does not provide a solid foundation on which the people of God can stand. Uh, and you see examples of that almost every day, new people saying crazy things. In much of the American church, sermons from God's Word have been replaced by pop psychology and motivational speeches intended to produce good little worldlings, happy little worldlings, and largely it's working. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same morality as unbelievers, the same, the same values as unbelievers, the same priorities as unbelievers, the same attitudes as unbelievers, the same actions as unbelievers, and the same reactions to stressors as unbelievers. In fact, when you, again, you, you look at those who study the American church and the surveys they conduct, what you find is in many cases, much of the American church, the only difference between someone who professes faith in Jesus and an unbeliever is the profession of faith. Not a demonstration of faith, merely a profession of faith. Not fruit consistent with genuine repentance, merely the profession, yes, I I believe in God. Many professing believers in the American church have no, no more actual commitment to God work, God's word than their unbelieving friends do. Many professing believers in the American church believe they had a hand in their own salvation or they believe people can be saved merely by being good. Many professing believers in the American church are no more active in their service to Jesus than their unbelieving friends are. In, in fact, an article I read a few years ago declared many professing believers in the American church have a greater loyalty to their brand of toothpaste than they do to their church. The church Jesus started by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So as you look at that, you have to wonder what's the problem. And the problem is many in the American church simply do not know Jesus. Many in the American church have no idea who Jesus is or what Jesus is like. And since they have no knowledge of who Jesus is or what he is like, they make up their own ideas about who Jesus is And what Jesus is like. And and in many, if not most cases, these ideas are damnably wrong. What we in the American church need is to see Jesus as he is. To understand who he is as he has revealed himself in God's word. That's what we're going to talk about some more tonight. Open your Bible to Isaiah 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. should be on page 521. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Isaiah 6 and 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face. With two, each covered his feet. And with two, each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe to me, 
for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sins. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes blind. So they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has completely removed the people and there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. Yet there will still be a tenth portion in it and it will be again subject to burning like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. The holy seed is its stump. The title of the message tonight is Seeing Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you tonight and we rejoice in the privilege we have of gathering in your house to study your word and to sing your praise. We thank you for the freedoms we have. Lord, that there is no real fear as we gather here tonight. Father, we're not as those in Afghanistan or in the Ukraine, other parts of the world where as they gather in your name, they fear. They fear bombs. They fear gunmen. They fear the police. They fear what the government will do to them for gathering and proclaiming and worshiping Jesus. Help us, Father, to not get over how great our freedoms are. Help us to not take it for granted. Help us, Father, to exercise our freedoms and worship you at every opportunity. We thank you, Father, for your word given to us in our language we can understand it's clear your spirit would guide us to give us an understanding of what it meant and what it means and how it applies to our lives today. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. How great a price was paid that salvation might be freely given to us. Let us not take that lightly. Let us not become so familiar with it that reading the story of the crucifixion of Jesus would not move us, stir our hearts, and make us love him more. God, tonight, as I speak, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to say what you once said, Father, nothing more, nothing less. Open our hearts to receive the word. Let your spirit take it. And make it living and active in our lives to change us in whatever ways we need to be changed. Sanctify us and make us ever more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Isaiah 6 details Isaiah's call to the prophetic ministry. God called Isaiah to serve in a time of transition and decline in the nation of Israel. King Uzziah had been a prosperous king. It had been a great time for the nation. 
There was peace, there was prosperity, and, and there was relative faithfulness to God for most of his reign. But this is all about to change. The people had already begun a descent into depravity that's only going to get worse as time goes on. The people are giving themselves over to greed, indulgence, drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality. They are mocking what is righteous and persecuting those who through faith in God were trying to live righteously. Isaiah was being sent to a people who had so perverted their values, they called evil good and good evil. And of course, that should all sound very familiar to us in our lives. Somebody trying to live for God in the midst of a, a nation that was once filled with people who were devoted to God. A nation once devoted to God, filled with people once devoted to God who are now indifferent Indulgent and idolatrous. A, a nation filled with people who now share the morality and the immorality of the, the pagans around them. A people who mock righteousness and revile those who seek to live righteously. A, a people who have perverted their value system and they call evil good and good evil. Living in a time like this makes it difficult just to be faithful to Jesus much less to be actively devoted to living for Him openly in the world. We, like Isaiah, we need to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. This is what Isaiah was allowed to see to propel him into faithfulness. This vision of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Now, I say Jesus even though this is an Old Testament passage because of what we're told in the Gospel of John. John references, in John 12, he references Isaiah 6, and he says what Isaiah saw was Jesus in all of his glory. He says what Isaiah wrote about when he wrote about this was Jesus. So this is a vision of Jesus. And we need this vision of Jesus in our day because how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. If we see Jesus as great and awesome, we will live as though our Redeemer is great and awesome. If we see Jesus as just a really good guy who had some really good teaching, we'll live as though Jesus was just a guy who had good teaching. How we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. Now, normally, we would look at this passage all together. Um, but we started last week just looking at the first four verses. Tonight, we're just going to look at the next Three verses and then we'll finish up next time. What we saw first was the vision of Jesus. Jesus was great. Jesus is holy and Jesus is worthy. Now that vision of Jesus, it frames everything Isaiah does in the rest of this passage. Everything he does and what we're going to look at tonight, what we'll look at next time, all of that flows out of the fact he saw Jesus. Great, holy, and worthy. And when we see Jesus as great, holy, and worthy, we'll respond in the same way Isaiah did. It changes how we see other things. And it changes how we begin to live for Jesus. So tonight what we're going to look at is just two things. First is that seeing Jesus reveals the severity of sins. Seeing Jesus... Reveals the severity of sin. Jesus, the great, holy, and worthy God, causes Isaiah to recognize, maybe for the first time, how severe sin 
really is. Now this passage, it reveals three truths about the severity of sin. The first is, sin ruins us. Notice what he says. Then I said, woe to me, for I'm ruined. The cry of woe is a cry of alarm. Isaiah suddenly senses something is terrible, something terrible is about to happen. His fear is that he would be struck dead because of his sin. As he recognized the severity of his sin, he understood his guilt and he feared the impending judgment. He knew a holy God could not overlook his sin. He knew a holy God could not make light of his sin. He knew a holy and righteous God must judge his sin. And so Isaiah feels that he is about to be destroyed. Isaiah knows if God deals with him in a strict sense of justice, without mercy, he is doomed. The picture in this passage is Isaiah falling prostrate on the ground before the Lord under the weight of Jesus' holiness, his sin, and his guilt. Isaiah's statement in verse 5 is a confession He is guilty of sin. It is also a recognition. His sin deserves the sure and swift judgment of God. Standing in the presence of a holy Jesus, Isaiah did not say, well, everyone has to have at least one bad habit. Standing in the presence of a holy Jesus, Isaiah did not say, well, it's not like I'm killing anyone or committing adultery. Staying in the presence of a holy Jesus, Isaiah did not say, there are only small sins. I'm not really doing the bad stuff. His perspective on sin had changed. He couldn't do or say anything to justify his sin. He simply falls on his face before a holy Jesus, overwhelmed with the weight of Jesus' holiness. Overwhelmed at the severity of his sin. And overwhelmed at the reality of his guilt. We see at the last of verse 5, he responds this way. Because his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Having seen Jesus in all of his glory, Isaiah realizes how serious his sin is. And it has left him ruined and worthy of judgment. We almost never see this kind of response to sin in our day. We, in our culture, we simply do not have this view of sin. That it ruins us. That it leaves us worthy of condemnation. And we don't have this view of sin simply because we don't have an accurate view of Jesus. The more, the more we make Jesus like us, the less severe our view of sin will be. And thus the less our sin will bother us. The more we view Jesus like us, the more we'll make light of sin in general and act as though it's no big deal. We will say things like, well, they're just small sins. Nobody's perfect. Well, I mean... It's not like I'm killing adultery. I'm not killing people or committing adultery. The more our view of Jesus lowers him to our level, 
the more acceptable sin becomes in our eyes and in our lives. But the more our view of Jesus is like what we see here as holy and great and worthy, the more severe our view of sin will be. And the more our sin will bother us, the more sin in general will bother us, not just ours, but sin in general. If our view of Jesus doesn't make our view of sin serious, then our view of Jesus is far too human. It is far less than who He is and what He is actually like. So the first truth we see is that sin ruins us. Secondly, sin is a heart issue. Notice the sin Isaiah confesses. He is a man of unclean lips, which seems out of place. Why would he confess being a man of unclean lips in light of the, the sure holiness of Jesus? Well, this confession shows Isaiah understood sin was not merely something we did, but something kind of was in us. That sin is an issue of the heart. Jesus would take this idea up and say a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth Good things, likewise, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. So good people out of the good treasure of their heart bring forth good things. Evil people out of an evil treasure of their heart brings forth evil things. That's so in essence, what Jesus is saying is you can look at someone's life and the actions of their life reveal the condition of their heart. You can see if their heart is pure you can see if their heart is evil by the actions in their life. Now, what kind of actions are a part of our life that reveal the condition of our heart? Well, in many, but Jesus has the answer for all of it. And the first one, in connection to this passage that we just looked at, is you offspring of vipers. How can you, being evil, express or say good things? For the mouth speaks... From that which fills the heart, the more familiar King James, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Like Isaiah, Jesus specifically mentions words. Now, when God's word speaks about our words and the evil words we might speak, it would cover things such as profanity. It would cover things such as gossip, as bad mouthing or judging others. Vulgar or profane jokes or stories, lying, abusive language, all of those and more are are covered under the words we speak, revealing the condition of our heart, revealing an evil heart, saying untrue things about Jesus. Right. This could be a false teaching. This is what Jesus is like when Jesus is not like that. It could be saying something false or untrue about Jesus by saying, well, the Lord told me when, in fact, the Lord had not told you. All of this and more are what it means when it says evil coming out of our mouth comes from what fills the heart. So in, in light of that, just that one area right there, what does it say about someone's heart if they consistently use profanity? Is it just another way to talk? Or does it reveal 
an evil heart. What does it say about someone's heart if they consistently gossip? Is it just a harmless telling of tales? Or does it reveal an evil heart? What does it reveal about someone's heart if they consistently badmouth others? Judge them in their speech? Is it just a character trait? Or is it a revelation of an evil heart from the evil words? What does it say about someone's heart if they consistently tell vulgar jokes or profane stories and jokes? Is it just humor and everybody ought to lighten up? Or is it reveal an evil heart and the abundance coming out of it? What does it say about someone's heart if they consistently lie? What does it say about someone's heart if they consistently are verbally abusive to others? What does it say about someone's heart if they consistently say untrue things about Jesus? Like Jesus is okay with something God's word says he isn't okay with. Or they say something untrue about Jesus like Jesus has given them peace about living in what Jesus himself calls a sin. Now, biblically speaking, do words say anything about the condition of the person's heart? Yes, it says quite a bit. We can say with accuracy that good words flow from a pure heart. Evil words flow from an evil heart. Now, that's not being judgmental. That's not me judging someone. That is me taking the words of Jesus at face value. Now, lest we think, well, that's taking it too literally and too far. Let me show you what else Jesus says. But I tell you that for every careless word people speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. We stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. Our words will be part of what we give an account for. And Jesus says That our words can be used to determine whether or not we're saved. That by our words we'll be justified or by our words we'll be condemned. Now this isn't Jesus teaching salvation by speaking the right way. This is Jesus teaching words are such an accurate reflection of the heart that words can reveal a person's eternal destiny. That's a strong statement. Very different from the world. Very different than what our culture says. But very much Jesus. But it's not just words that are a reflection of our heart. It's all the actions of our life as well. That which comes out of the heart is what defiles a person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, Murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, out of the heart, and defile the person. So Jesus gives us a list of defiling sins. And he tells us these defiling sins flow from the abundance of the heart just as much as the words do. So let me just take a minute and go through what those things mean. Evil thoughts. The Greek word for evil is also translated as as grievous, harmful, malicious, and lewd. So that's a broad range of categories, right? So if my if my thoughts are 
harmful toward others often. I think about how much I hate people, despise them. That's a sign something's wrong in my heart. If in my mind I think of malicious things to say and do to people, there's something wrong in my heart. If in my mind I'm thinking lustful and lewd thoughts, there's something wrong in my heart. Acts of sexual immorality. This is any sexual action taken outside the bonds of marriage. And Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains the spirit behind the physical act of sex outside of marriage, uh, whether fornication or adultery, is, is lust. So lust, like through pornography or anything along those lines, anything that would stir up lust in our hearts and lust in our lives would fit in this category. And it's a sign that something is wrong in our heart. Theft, to steal, to cheat, or to wrongfully take from another person. Murder, wrongfully take the life of another. But again, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying the spirit behind murder is is an unjustified anger. Being angry without cause. An anger that treats people with contempt. An anger that, that sort of despises people and speaks God's judgment upon them. Those words, those attitudes, flow from a heart that's not right. Adultery, being sexually unfaithful to your spouse, deeds of greed or covetous. The word here translated there is one word in the Greek, and it basically means a consuming desire to have more. Uh, One commentary I have describes it as putting money in a pocket with holes in it. It never fills up. It's just always hungry for more. And this could cover anything. We can be covetous for money, fame, power, sex, promotion, or stuff. Really anything. It can be used to describe a consuming desire about anything. Wickedness. The, the word wickedness seems to focus mostly on doing harmful things to others. So it's malice and hatred to do harm to other people. Deceit. Uh, the word meant... The word means to bait someone and lead them into a trap. So it is to mislead someone by twisting the truth to influence them to do something. Indecent behavior. The Greek word used is a general word to describe all kinds of moral uncleanness. It also is used to describe an attitude about the moral uncleanness. So people engage in indecent behavior, not only act in these morally unclean ways, but they're also not ashamed of their moral uncleanness. And they look upon with approval of other people who are morally unclean. Envy is a lust for what it doesn't have. Uh, The idea seems to be covetousness and jealousy kind of combined. It wants what it doesn't have and it's angry at those who have it. Slander is doing harm to another person's reputation by spreading gossip, lies, or rumors about them. Pride, self-exaltation, conceit, or arrogance causing us to consider ourselves to be better than others. Foolishness. This one is the most interesting on the list to me. Because the most common idea associated with foolishness in that word is simply thoughtlessness. So someone who speaks without thinking is foolish. Someone who acts without thinking is foolish. Someone who doesn't think about the consequences of their actions is foolish. Someone who is thoughtless regarding their morals and their duties and their behavior is foolish. Now, all of those things, they they come from a heart that is not right. 
And we know that's not a complete list. We could look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, see similar lists telling the same sort of thing. So, again, biblically speaking, do these sorts of actions say anything about the condition of the heart? Well, yeah. We can say that pure actions flow from a pure heart and evil actions flow from an evil heart. Again, that's not being judgmental. That is taking Jesus' words at face value. And if our view of, of Jesus doesn't cause us to take these sort of words at face value and see the desperate deadliness of sin and that it flows from the heart, then our view of Jesus is, is far too human. So sin, according to Isaiah, what we see here, it ruins us. Sin is a heart issue. And then finally, sin is pervasive in culture. Isaiah himself is not only a man of unclean lips, but he lives among a people. Of unclean lips. He realizes at this point just how pervasive sin is in the culture around him. Maybe he didn't realize it before. Maybe he thought since the people of Israel were the people of God, they were basically okay. Maybe he thought God was going to overlook their sin because of how good they'd been in the past. Whatever he may have thought before, in the light of God's holiness, he understood exactly how pervasive the sin in his people, in his culture, truly was. Now, if we were to take the time to look at these things again, we'd clearly see how common they are in our culture today. And not just the culture at large, like people out there do bad things. But in the people of the culture. And the reason this is important is because it's terribly easy for us to view some people... In a very strict way, while viewing other people through sort of a rose-colored lens kind of way. People we don't know, people we don't like, people we don't love, we can view in a very strict way. And we can say, gosh, they're foolish, that's a sign, their heart's not right. But then when it comes to people we do know, people we do like. People we do love, we see their foolishness and we say, oh, they're just immature. Oh, that's, they just, there's just, it's not the same. And this is, this sort of justifying or minimizing another sin is what we do when we don't have an accurate view of Jesus. If my view of sin can be really hard for red, And then really like for Joe, even though it's the same basic thing, it's not because Joe's sin is less or Red's sin is worse. It's because my view of Jesus is far too human. And anytime we minimize another person's sin, anytime we justify it, anytime we try to make it so it's not as bad as God's word says it is, it always reveals something about us, not about them. Not about the others we think it's really bad, about us. And what it reveals is our view of Jesus is far too human. When we see Jesus as he is, it causes us to see how deadly dangerous sin is. How deadly dangerous our sin is. How deadly dangerous other people's sin is. Sin is. And in And if it doesn't do that, if our view of Jesus doesn't do that, 
Our view of Jesus is far too human. We have made him far too much like us. Any idea we may have about who Jesus is, what Jesus does and what Jesus is like, that doesn't lead us to see the severity of sin. It makes Jesus less than he is. And it is a thought that is completely unworthy of him. And as you can see, how we see Jesus determines how we'll live for Jesus. determines the kind of holiness I'll have in my life. It determines how good I'll be at trying to talk others and try to influence them out of sin and to Jesus. How we see Jesus determines how we live for Jesus. So seeing Jesus reveals the severity of sin. Secondly, seeing Jesus reveals the need for salvation. This is just like the natural next step. Isaiah realizes the severity of his sin. Something else becomes abundantly clear. He can't fix himself. This is why he's ruined. He doesn't say he's in a bad way. Given time, he can square it away. He's not. He's ruined. His sin has brought him under the judgment of God and there's no way out for him. He is unable to fix himself in any way at all. But in the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 2, but God. But God, who is great and awesome, does something amazing. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Rather than leaving Isaiah under the crushing weight of his guilt and sin, God provides a cleansing. One of the angelic beings takes the hot coal, touches his lips, and tells him his iniquity is taken, atonement is made, he is forgiven. The hot coal was meant to represent the purifying or the purging of sin. The altar was the altar of burnt offering. This would have reminded Isaiah that forgiveness came through the sacrifice, the blood of another. Now when Isaiah realized the holiness of Jesus and the severity of his sin, he also realized the desperate need he had for grace and mercy. When Isaiah sees the holy Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't start talking about how good he's been. Right? He, there's no talk of all of the good things he's done up to this point in his life. There's no talk about how Isaiah is better than his neighbor. There is simply a recognition of his unworthiness to come before a holy and majestic God. There is a recognition that he deserves the judgment of God because of the severity of his sins. The cleansing he receives in verses 6 and 7 is not something Isaiah does. Isaiah does not turn over a new leaf. Isaiah does not become more religious. Isaiah does not fix himself and then come back. God does it. There was nothing Isaiah could have done to cleanse himself. This was all God's work on his behalf. He was wholly dependent upon God to cleanse him and to make atonement for his sin and to take his guilt away. When we see Jesus as he is, One of the things that becomes abundantly clear is we are just as wholly dependent on God to cleanse us as Isaiah was. That when we understand the the holiness and the greatness and the majesty of Jesus, there is no talk about how good we are. About all of our good deeds. About all the things we have done in the past. There is simply 
a recognition of the severity of our sin and the desperate need for God to be merciful to us. Thankfully, God has been merciful to us in Christ and it's his work. But it is due to him, to God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, notice the exact wording. It is because of God we are in Christ Jesus. It is Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. It was God who came up with the plan of salvation we call the gospel. It was God who gave his son to come to earth and die in our place. It was Jesus who lived sinfully, lived sinlessly, not sinfully, that's heresy, boys and girls, sinlessly. It was Jesus who died sacrificially. It was Jesus who rose victoriously. It was the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to see Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit's quickening and work in our lives, we never would have seen our need for Jesus. All we did was believe. We believed what God planned. We believed what Jesus did. We believed what the Spirit revealed. Now, the belief is active and not passive, to be sure. It is reaching out to take hold, as it were, of the salvation being offered to us. And once we took hold, he took hold of us. And in that moment, Jesus justifies us. Jesus becomes our righteousness. Think about that. Your righteousness and mine at the moment of salvation at this moment. And if we live faithfully for Jesus for another hundred years, our righteousness will always be the righteousness of Christ and not our personal righteousness. Jesus became our sanctification. It is his work in our lives to make us more like him. Jesus becomes our redemption. Redemption is the ultimate redemption. Speaks not of the day we were initially saved, but of the time when we go to be with Jesus. On that day, it will be because of Jesus we're taken from this life and we go to live in heaven. And as we stand before him, we will boast in one thing, the Lord. We won't boast in our goodness. We won't boast in anything we have done. We will boast only in the one who has died for us, and the one who has saved us, and the one who has kept us. Everything about our salvation is wholly dependent on God through Christ from start to finish. Now, this is a humbling thought. It's humbling to acknowledge we are wholly dependent on another to cleanse us from our sin and make us righteous. It is humbling to acknowledge we can never add to or improve upon the righteousness Jesus gives us. It is humbling to acknowledge our redemption rests wholly on Jesus. His willingness to cleanse us and the righteousness he gives us. Not only is what is this what God has done for us so we could be saved. It's what God must do for others before they can be saved. You see, again, no one will ever be saved apart from what God does for them through faith in Jesus. When we see Jesus as he is, we not only see that God must save us through Christ. 
we see that God must save others through Christ. Again, this is where we can look at people we know, people we like, and people we can love. And we can know that there is no evidence of Christ in their life. We can know they've never made a legitimate profession for Jesus. We can see there is no fruit. And yet we'll say, well, they're basically good people. So I'm sure they're going to be okay. The reality is they won't be. And our view of that, our thoughts of that, only come because we have a low view of Jesus. The book of Galatians will tell us that if people can be saved through their own goodness, through their own adherence to the law, then Jesus died in vain. Now that's something we need to hear in our minds often. Anytime we think, well, they're a good person, I'm sure they're okay, the thought should run through our minds, then Christ has died in vain. Because that's what we're saying. That is a low view of Jesus to think anyone will ever be saved apart from what God does through faith in Jesus. Any view we have of who Jesus is and what Jesus does that allows for salvation apart from faith in Jesus or attributes merit to anyone but Jesus makes Jesus less than he is and is unworthy of him. When we see Jesus as he is, we know everyone needs Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. But for tonight, I just want to end by saying everything again starts with Isaiah seeing Jesus as he is. Everything else flows out of that. The point tonight for us really isn't so much see your sin more seriously. We should, but that's not the point. The point tonight is to be more in awe of your salvation. We should, but that's not really the point. The main thing is to see Jesus as he is. This is where it all has to start. Because if we see Jesus as holy and great and worthy, we will naturally see the severity of sin. We will naturally see salvation comes through Christ alone. So the main thought tonight, what we have to do to be sure our views are right, the way we live is right, is to be sure we see Jesus As he is. And I think with this, there has to be a couple of things. I think there has to be a want to see Jesus in this way. I don't think this is true of people here tonight. But there are people in American churches who don't want to see Jesus this way. Because they don't want to see sin as serious And they don't want to see the necessity of Jesus for salvation for all people. We have to want this. We have to want to see Jesus as he is. And and we need the Holy Spirit to do it. I don't believe we can muster up the strength to see Jesus better. I don't think I can say, elevate your view of Jesus and we'll all go, yes, Jesus is great and that's going to fix it all. Isaiah was given this as a a vision from God. We needed something like that no less than he. Now, not necessarily a vision where we're taken into heaven. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the word living and active. He opens our eyes to behold wondrous things out of the word. He reveals to us the deep things of God and leads us into all truth, gives us the mind of Christ. All of these things are the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what we need is not a so much a personal decision. I'm going to elevate my view of Jesus. What we need is the Holy Spirit to elevate our view of Jesus, to open this up to us, to remind us of what we all once knew for sure. And that does require us to pray for it. Father, send your spirit. Open our eyes. Open my eyes. Let me see Jesus as he is. I believe this is a prayer God wants. Because the Holy Spirit does lead us into all truth. God does want us to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires us to elevate our view of Jesus. And he will do the work. If we're willing. And we seek him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. We ask tonight for your Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes to better understand the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. Father, forgive us where we've had a view of Jesus that was far too human. Forgive us where we have not taken sin as seriously as we should. We have thought good people go to heaven when they don't. Forgive us, Father, for those things and and. And just send your spirit to give us the mind of Christ, to open your word, to give us these wonderful truths. And from that, let our view of Jesus be elevated. Let us be in greater awe of who he is and what he's like. And let that transform how we see sin, how we see salvation, everything about our lives and how we live for Christ. Be glorified in doing this among us, we ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.